Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we're into extra time. Kia ora and welcome to Extra Time. I'm Clay Wilson. Well, yet another national sporting organisation in this country is undergoing a cultural review relating to allegations of bullying and harassment. An investigation by Stuff has revealed around two-thirds of Canoe Racing New Zealand's women's high-performance squad have left the programme in the past 18 months. Former athletes have described the culture in the elite group as toxic and manipulative. The national body admit some coaching and selection matters could have been communicated in a better manner but reject suggestions there was or is a culture of bullying or harassment. Either way, the situation is now the subject of a review by High Performance Sport New Zealand. It comes less than a month after a slew of allegations involving gymnastics in this country, while cycling, hockey, football and rowing have all come under the microscope in the past couple of years for the way some athletes have been treated. Joining me now to discuss these latest revelations is Locker Room's Ashley Stanley, Wellington Pride player Alice Soper, sport writer Hamish Bidwell and RNZ's Joe Porter. Well, as I just touched on there, the list of sports being forced to answer these questions about their high-performance environments continues to grow. Ashley, coming to you first, what's your reaction to seeing this latest situation at Canoe Racing New Zealand? I think it's just highlighting the fact that we have to try and be really clear around, you know, at what cost are we willing to win? Um, You know, you've mentioned quite a few sports now, sporting codes that have had issues around athletes coming about their um, coming out about their um, welfare and every time you read about it or hear about it or speak about it you always wonder like you know you know, we definitely want to win but at what cost at the cost of them having breakdowns mental well-being issues um, physical and sexual assault issues it's just I don't think it's really been worth it. What do you reckon, Alice, as, a, as an athlete? What this is is just a further reckoning of, of aligning these things, that women are finding their power, and so within finding their power, they're able to speak out on what has probably been a pretty terrible environment for a long time. The idea that you have to yell at someone to get their best performance or abuse them or try and manipulate things is just nonsense. This is a professional thing. We wouldn't expect this in other uh, you know, professional outlets, whether that's business or what have you, so I don't know why we put up with it sports. The specific concerns are obviously slightly different across all these different sports that have had these issues but it's clearly a bit of a trend here. Hamish if I can come to you why do you think we keep seeing these stories? Why is there a theme here? I genuinely think that there's in some cases things are sinister but in most cases I just think people in sports administration are hopeless. I think they have no idea and I'll give you an example. Last summer, the Wellington Blaze cricket team um, imploded because they had a guy put in as coach with very quote-unquote traditional views. Um, there were people in the team who were married. There were other people in the team who were in a relationship, and he blew up. He couldn't take that. He couldn't understand that. And the players, quite frankly, as they should have been, were utterly offended and revolted and told him to get out. He had to be removed. Now, that's a situation where you have a known quantity. I... I, I won't mention the guy by name, I could if I wanted, but people know who he is, people knew his track record, people knew his views. But 
the organisation set him and the team up to fail by putting someone who wasn't going to fit the culture of women's cricket or women's sport and put him in there and made life difficult for everyone and created a scene and created a problem. And I just think that it would be nice if we could treat people nicely in this country, and it seems really strange that we can't, um, but rather than sometimes things being sinister or there being genuine abuse or genuine um, attempts to belittle people, sometimes just administrators are daft and they don't have a, the right idea and they put inappropriate people involved in situations and then they look back and go, oh, I wonder how that happened. Well, think about who you're appointing in the first place. I also wonder whether we can get players' involvement and, and, and athletes' involvement and selection of these people as well. I mean, I think about that all the time when we, we're appointing people. We're doing it, and I think that um, just I can say locally here, you know, with our coaching appointment that happens for our um, provincial coaches, you know, that's generally made by our boards, our unions, and that's cool. I have no issue with the coaches that we have at the moment. They're a group of good guys. But a lot of the time we don't have that uh, feedback or from players or their perspective into that conversation when they're the ones that are actually going to be dealing with them day in and day out out you know it's also this whole thing too of like women know someone's a bit off like and it, and the problem is I think is a lot of the time these won't be necessarily quantifiable things but the walkout the mass walkout in this situation speaks for itself these are a whole group of women now that have all one by one said enough is enough and walked away so to say that this is no problem here and oh just a little communication issue I think is completely underplaying the issue and we need to be taking things more seriously and treating women like we should be which is the professional athletes that they are yeah, I guess the administrators need to do their you know, due diligence and really look at the candidates they're reviewing to put in these places. You've got to be wary of giving players too much power, Alison, yeah, afraid. <laughs> because we have a situation at the Hurricanes a few years ago where five senior All Blacks essentially got Jamie Joseph booted out because they didn't want to train hard. Um, and, you know, you can't have that kind of bollocks <laughs> going on in professional sport because that is not conducive to a high-performance environment either where you have players you know, running the ship in, in its entirety. So yeah, there's an element of balance, I think. You talk about things like sexual, sexual harassment, fat shaming, physical abuse, some of these things that have come up in some of these stories. I mean, I think we all know that there's no place for any of that in sport. But when you talk about coaching approach and methods, if you look at it from the view of some people, what what's others consider bullying and intimidation, some of those people will just say, well, that's hard-nosed coaching, and actually it gets success. So We know the difference between these two. Like, I was just having a laugh the other day. Yeah, it's but I think a lot of coaching. people would say it's a, it's a bit of a finer line, and it's not perhaps so clear, not easy to, to define what's wrong and what's right here. I think yeah, there's well, a very clear right, uh, uh, line between what's right right and wrong. Um, I mean, there's uh, plenty of coaches that are, you, you know, not coming out with any of your kinds any sort of these kind of allegations against them and still winning. I mean, you saw it in Netball with Nodin Todor. She came in with, what, 18 months to go? She's, popped, you know, nothing's come out of her to say yeah, that. Yeah, but she's also, she's also known, you know, for, for being a hard taskmaster when it comes to things like fitness and things like that. So she, she can, you know, she doesn't pull punches where she needs to as well. Yeah, but this is the thing. We, we know the difference. <laughs> Between, between like what is like personal attacks and what is performance, right? And this is setting up those conversations in that regard. And I think this just kind of goes to an old school, old boys mentality. Where, and also just like what's okay and what's not okay to say. Like the, the, the needle has moved on that. There are a lot of people that seem to be stuck in a, an idea. Like I, I had to walk out of a meeting um, two weeks ago because a man refused to refer to our team as a woman's team and instead kept calling us girls. Uh, and he made a pointed note of doing that again at the end of the uh, 
a meeting when I had raised to him and explained to him what the issue was around language there. So there are a lot of people that just don't want to catch up with things. And to them, I say, move on. There are more than uh, a, a few examples of people that are doing it right. Nolene is one. Alan Bunting with the Blackfern Sevens mm. is another. These are both people that know how to set standards, know how to set targets, know how to encourage results, but do that as well as, as coaching a whole person and understanding that, you know what, yelling at someone and calling them fat is probably not going to be something that's going to make anybody endeared to you or endeared to your jersey. Everyone, regardless of your male or female athletes, you want to win. But the difference between like No, no Lena and um, Alan's one is that they've already explicitly said, come out and say that they look after the person beyond the player and they get the best out of their players that way without having to manipulate or you know, play games with you because you definitely want to work hard. And any athlete who, any professional athlete in this code knows that they have to work hard if they want to be the best. It's just the um, tactics that some coaches are uh, employing are probably coming out to be like a little bit, like Ella said, old school mentality. And sometimes it just isn't going to work. We talked about the administrators and their role in this. I want to touch on the funding model because there's been talk around that as well because obviously the, the high-performance funding model drives success if you do well you get more money Hamish what's what part is that playing in this trend we're seeing with these stories one thing I would say and I I I get I kick the I put the boot into rugby all the time I think that we are seeing and I've covered every minor sport along the way on my way to covering rugby and we sit around and go rugby too much publicity too much money too much problems, just a pack of self-entitled jerks. I actually genuinely think, and Alice will have a different view potentially because her experience might be different from mine, but I think they do player welfare better than most people. I think that they they care for people. I think that they um, they support them financially. I think that they don't have despots running off with money. They don't have tyrants abusing the, the heck out of people. I actually think a lot of these minor sports don't get a lot of scrutiny. And we once you start scrutinising them, you see that they're actually not very well run and they're actually some really unpleasant people involved um uh, yeah so i don't want to be like as i'm you know i don't want to be a cheerleader for rugby but i just think that i don't think some of these minor sports are particularly well run and i think if we wanted to look at all of them or many of them i think we'd find similar stories that we've seen in gymnastics we're seeing in canoeing i think you know a lot of these people don't stand up to scrutiny but that's the difference right between professionalism and amateur and the thing is with these high performance programs a lot of these people are still fairly amateur in, in how we are running these programs and so yeah i do have a different perspective from hamish because of course i'm i'm operating very much what is the amateur um side of rugby still so i'm still seeing those amateur attitudes playing out when you go back down to the grassroots there's still that attitude there but the further you go up the closer you get to the professional and the closer you get to the stuff that's actually being run by EDZR, yeah, the standard is better. The, the, what they will and will not accept, what they will and won't tolerate is, is different. And this is the same thing with this. The closer we get to money and professionalism, the better the attitudes are because people understand it's a business decision. If nothing else, this is poor optics for your sport to have people dropping out and not having the best people participate because they can't get on board with the attitudes or the way that things are being run. So, yeah, I think, you know, it is going to be money does shine a spotlight. Um, and so that's probably going to bring a whole bunch more things in the light. We're going to continue to see that happening as as it goes into a transition and as things further professionalise. And as particularly the women's sections of these continue to uh, continue to grow because this is all, has often been the place where you kind of chuck any old any old bloke who's uh, willing to do it. And so as we we're saying, you know what, we maybe want the best now rather than the rest. If it is a trend now and it is a theme across six different sports now. 
is it time high performance sport or you know the the people at the top start addressing this as something that needs to be stamped out across the board, looking at it across New Zealand sport, not just dealing with each case as it comes up? It's a societal issue. It's not unique mm-hmm. to sport. You look in women in business. Why do you think after the sport, why do you think there's women in business initiatives, women in STEM initiative, women in sport initiatives? It's because the at, the at the core of it, women, you teach our girls and our boys from a very young age, and as a parent I know the difference is you can see subtle little things that you do day to day that you can see that, oh, my girl is a little bit less than my boy, purely based on how people think and how society is set up. So if we want to address it in a sports sense, Start at home first and then also work from the top as well around the administrators and do what Alice and Matt are doing and say, actually, it's not it's not good enough anymore. Yeah, and I think that this has been what I've found and, you know, as I've become more, uh, I've always been outspoken, but as more people have started to hear the things I'm saying, <laughs> I, I get reached out by lots of different codes. When I had my, um, uh, let's say, conversation with NZR earlier this year, I had people from hockey, I had people from football, I had people from different codes, uh, female athletes reach out to me and say, yes, thank you for doing this because they were in similar spaces with their sports. And so realising this is the thing for me is that, as our participation in our sports grows, as the basically the growth point for sports continues to be the women's section of all sports, we can start to realise our power and we can come together and we can start to ask for more, ask for better. And so if we continue to do that, we're going to keep pushing people to sharpen their tools and at the same time, if we can put a spotlight on those at the top, if we can review the way that also administrators are appointed in the same way that coaches are too, because otherwise you've got the same people picking the same people and we're surprised by the same results. Moving on um, to look at the North-South game this weekend, um, I guess it's been a long time coming this game, a lot of talk about it for, for months now, the revival of this this rivalry, this thing that was, this game that was, perhaps it's, perhaps it's a bit of a throwback to the amateur era, Joe you've been covering the build up to the game, there's a lot of promotion and PR, uh, some would call it around this game, but how much actual interest do you think there is around it? Oh, I think there'll be plenty of interest from the TV viewers tomorrow night. I mean, it's it's an All Blacks trial, you know. It's uh, essentially so it's exciting to watch. There's plenty of individual matchups that are exciting, and um, you know, guys that don't usually play against each other. One example being Sevu Reese marking George Bridge, two All Black wings that have played for the Crusaders for the last few years, get a chance to try and tackle each other or beat each other on the outside. So there's things like that that make it very intriguing. Of course, Richie Mwanga and Bowden Barrett at first five, and Jordan Barrett, Jordy Barrett, and Damian McKenzie at fullback. There's lots of that. Sort of stuff that makes it very intriguing, but in terms of a north-south rivalry, mate versus mate type origin setup, no. I mean, there's no interest whatsoever. Uh, I don't really think anyone's bought into the the way they've selected the teams. I understand why they have done that because. Uh, to, to explain it quickly for people that don't know, the eligibility rules were set on which team you made your provincial debut for rather than which school you played first 15 for. So you get a lot of guys that grew up in the South Island playing for the North and a few, vice versa. In fact, 14 of the 52 players from the South Island, uh, 14, sorry, of the 52 players involved in this game uh, went to school in the South Island. So, you know, it, it is a bit of a disparity there and you can understand why the selectors have made it more like an All Blacks trial so they get the best players involved. But the players would have liked to have been from their high school and I think fans could have engaged with that more because it's a bit more representative of where they come. I mean, Mitchell Hunt for example, Mitch Hunt grew up in in Nelson played first 15 with Mitchell Drummond who's in the south at Nelson College played for the Crusaders, now plays for Tasman spent one year at Auckland when he was a youngster made his provincial table out there and he's playing for the north so that's that's an interesting one. But um, yeah, so I don't think that they've really sold that traditional match, the reignition of this rivalry. I mean, I find the most interesting story out of this is 
they refound the loving cup after 88 years being lost. 1932, they played this inter-island game and lost the cup the very same match. It was found 88 years later recently in the bowels of Eden Park somewhere, but they'd already commissioned another trophy to be made. So now the winning team gets two on Saturday night. That story seems far more intriguing to me than the actual match. But yeah, Let's All Blacks trial. Sunday they named their team. All the All Blacks play this year. Probably bloody not. But, you know, at least we get to see the best players in New Zealand have a bash at each other again this weekend. And we've got a dearth of sport at the moment. So, you know, it's not a bad thing, is it? I'll be watching. Well, let's hope whoever wins those trophies can keep them intact this time. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Especially this nicely new one. It's, it looks gorgeous, yeah. <laughs> Hamish, I'm sure, I'm sure you've got some, some reckons on, on this particular game. What are you going to take out of it? How much interest do you have in it? Uh, I wrote a column for this fine organisation last week in which I said I had no <laughs> idea who was in the teams. Um, I had no idea how they contrived to, uh, to make the teams and I wouldn't be watching the game and nothing's changed there. Um, since then, I've written for someone else that I think that given the state of things, so uh, the chances of international rugby being played in New Zealand this year look increasingly remote. Um, I know that there's an All Blacks trial feel about this and Ian Foster's naming a team on Sunday, but for what? To play against who and when? I mean, I would like to see, if they want to give this game legitimacy and interest and all that, I'd like to see them play again in two weeks' time. And then I'd like to see two weeks after that them play a decider. Um, you've got these guys in camp, work with them, you know, develop a rivalry because run doesn't exist at the moment. I don't care about the individual matchups because I don't know who's in the teams. And just as an aside, the next time someone mentions Richie Moanga and Bowden Barrett to me in the same team, <laughs> I will punch the lights out. I am so bored of that. Like, I think Joe Ford is your number one target there. Yeah, it's such a bore. Like, if that's the best we've got to debate in this country, we might as well give rugby up. You know what I mean? But fair dinkum, I, I genuinely think that given this year and what's potentially on the horizon, which looks like not much, let's make the most of this series. You know, I'd have preferred right from the get-go all our players to play provincial rugby rather than Super Rugby Aotearoa. Um, I'm not interested in North-South. I'd have liked that competition, the Super competition, to have an actual final. We haven't had those things. So let's make the most of North-South. What are we picking a team for on Sunday? No one's playing anyone. Do you know what I mean? South Africa aren't coming here. We might get Australia. Crikey, how bad are they? You know, how boring will that be? So make something out of North-South. Give it some impetus. Give it some status. Give it, create a rivalry and people will watch. But I, I won't be watching this one-off game because it stands for nothing. It's worth nothing. God, there's nothing else on though, Hamish. <laughs> well, as I said before we went to air, on Saturday night, Sonny Bill Williams is playing for the Roosters against the Raiders in Canberra. And I will be watching that. And what an impact he's going to have on that club too. I don't care though. He's Sonny Bill Williams. And I like NRL and it's a proper competition. It's not the Mickey Mouse made up going, we found the trophy. We, it was such a loser competition, such a nothing match that we chucked the... We must have found it at the dump. Do you know what I mean? Like they, we found the trophy. Well, I can tell you. The NRL only has four decent teams. The rest are just rubbish. Anyway, I'm not sure if you can call that a great call right, either. But anyway, we digress. Yeah, we digress. yeah, let's try and stay on track here. But we'll stay with hey, rugby. Hamish, I can tell you that both uh, my friends that live in the US and the UK will be waking up to watch um, North Bay South because they're absolutely Ooh. desperate to watch some rugby. So I yeah. think you know, in terms of selling it, you're selling it abroad as much as you're selling it here because there's no rugby for anybody to watch but I have to agree it's if you were going to do it properly making it into a series would have made more sense because one off and particularly the whole idea of uh, of this you know who you play debut for I think all that really does is just shine a light on how different player pathways were than the last time that this competition was played because in the last time when this competition was played if you wanted to play for New Zealand you play for your club you worked your way into Auckland B's then you played Auckland A's then you played for your province and you felt really good but now you might get signed up out 
out of school to an academy, might have one random game for an NPC, but actually you're chasing the super. So nobody really has that connection to those players. Mm. Like I, it was completely random to me that uh, you know a couple of them like uh, Bowden, the Barretts, the fact that the Barretts are all over the place just speaks to that. Uh, but yeah, let's make this three thing. Make it like state of origin. If you're trying to rip it off, do it at least do a, a better job of uh, of replicating the product. Right, yeah, we'll, 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 yeah, well, well just just on that yeah, note, you were right, right, right on cue, right on cue, Alice. So that was my next talking point. Because um, you know, as as a, a resident Farapama Cup insider, you can give us all the inside <laughs> goss and details. Um, one thing I did notice was obviously the New Zealand Sevens players. A lot of them are going to be involved this year. So, what difference is that going to make to this competition? And how, I guess, how excited are you that it's actually happening and it's arrived? Oh, well, firstly, that it's happening and that it's arrived, woohoo, how good. But also that, yeah, we've got all these players that have been released. So when I was uh, training at last Saturday and throwing the ball in at the line-out, every single jumping option I had was a black fern. So can't be mad at that. Uh, this And this is the case across the country-wide, that there's been – every team now has picked up at least one in a black jersey. So that's going to be boosting people's um, enthusiasm. And just the uh, the – attitude and, and intent that there is at training at the moment jeepers we've got uh, four hookers that i'm having to fight with um to get my spot we're going to have uh we're having our last warm-up because we start a week later than the northern pool because we've got one less team so th- that kicks off tomorrow the one that's televised i believe is counties monaco who are playing oh goodness i should know harbour they're playing harbour Harbour. that's harbour. right north harbour yeah. they're going to be actually that's the shame i would say in terms of scheduling is that all the first round matchups are probably going to be fairly lopsided because you've got auckland playing Taranaki, that'll be a walkover for Auckland. And then the other match as well is Waikato and uh, Northland. Northland. So it's it's pretty, it's going to be unfortunately a bit of a one-sided affair, I would imagine, for this first round. But the second round is when the cool kids like me get to start playing. So uh, Southern teams joining in as well. Uh, and then we it's all go from there. But really just excited to start playing again instead of talking about rugby. Finally this week, Let's go something a little from left field. Last weekend, former Olympic long-distance runner Robbie Johnston crossed the line first in the 50-54 to 54 age group at the New Zealand Cross Country Challenge in Dunedin. But his victory was soon taken away, officials disqualifying him for spitting during the race. With the event being run in COVID-19 Level 2, guidelines stated competitors should avoid spitting or discharging mucus from the nose close to other competitors. Johnston told Barry Guy he doesn't actually remember spitting, but is sure it wouldn't have been in an offensive manner or near anyone else. I got told at the finish, you know, I'd been disqualified because I'd been seen spitting twice. But I found out later that you were supposed to get a warning, like a yellow card, um, when you're out on the course. So I never saw anyone waving a yellow card or yelling, you know, number whatever, you know, you've been warned for spitting. So I never had any warning. So the first I sort of knew about it was a few minutes after the finish and someone comes up and tells me, oh, you've been kicked out of the race. And then I was just a bit sort of, oh, okay, a bit dumbstruck. And I was sort of with some other people and, you know, I guess we were just having a bit of a laugh about it, thinking it was a bit of a joke. And I guess it was only a little bit later when I thought, God, you know, I saw I was the only one to be disqualified out of the 300-odd people there. And I you know, God, that's a bit blimmin' annoying. It's like getting picked on him. I've been made an example of here for, you know, COVID regulations or something. And it did say on that same information sheet all officials would be wearing masks and gloves. Well, there would have been a handful wearing masks. So it just seemed a little bit 
inconsistent in the application of the hastily drawn up regulations, I guess. I think it was later on Saturday when I did get a little bit annoyed when I think because I was watching the Warriors and you know after you know Roger Tuivasa Sheck scoring a couple of tries and seeing him wandering around you know having a couple of spits as he's walking back to the halfway there and you think God you know playing league on a field like that there's probably more danger of picking up something than than um, some windswept um, golf course uh, you know a few runners running around so. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, God, that's a bit blimmin' ridiculous. So that's Robbie Johnston there. First of all, I love how he uses the Warriors and Roger Tuivasa-Sheik to explain, to explain his displeasure with, with what happened. Um, Hamish, I feel like you might have a good view on this. Do, do we agree with him that the decision was a bit over the top, or are officials right to be strict when it comes to this kind of thing, given the climate we're in? Uh, when I was at journalism school, we had a professional actor come in to do something for us. He would talk about some incident and where to ask him certain questions. And if you didn't get all the right information out of him, you failed your assessment and all this kind of stuff. And I said, let's, the guy was 60 odd. I said, let's do the real question here, which is how's your acting career come to this? Like what a failure you must be <laughs> to be here at this thing. Absolutely. You got an A plus. Story. And, and that's how I feel about this. I did. I failed. Um, but that's how I feel about this. Imagine how your life's become, come to this, that you're a spitting monitor at a cross country event. Like what, I'd love to meet the spitting monitor. I'd love to know the person who waved a paddle at him or marked it down on their spreadsheet that there'd been a spit. Like, what kind of a person becomes a spitting monitor? He does say he saw others spitting, and it's hard to believe that there weren't others among this whole event spitting. So has he been made an example of? I mean, Joe, what, what do you think? It sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? He's the only one that gets done out of 300. Apparently he was in the master's class, is that right? Sort of 50 to 54-year-olds, yeah, and yeah. they were the only group that were given warnings, several others in that group. So who knows? Perhaps the... Uh, official monitoring the 50 to 54 year old age group was you know a little bit more officious than the rest of them maybe it was one or of his old rivals or something you never know there could be something sinister there perhaps it's a guy he beat across the line five years ago at the Scottish Harriers race at the back end of Dunedin and he's just he's holding on to that grudge you just never know but it does seem quite bizarre doesn't it in all seriousness no though if this is the the new normal how hard is it going to be for athletes to adjust to these kind of rules? Because, I mean, it's, if they're going to be that strict, yeah. we're going to see a lot of punishments we've, meted out, aren't we? We've talked about this before because I think UEFA, European football, were suggesting bringing in yellow carding a player for spitting in the first instance, and then, of course, you get a red card if you spit twice, rah, rah, rah. The thing is... Players are so used to spitting on the field that these punishments these uh, aren't really going to work in the short term. So, for example, a player's going to spit, quickly realise what they've done, look to the referee with a big I'm sorry face, but still cop a yellow card, right? And that's going to go on. It will take a couple of years for players to be conditioned to that, to learn to not to spit. By the time that happens, COVID might be gone. So I think it's a bit pointless. I think it's a bit New Zealand, though, too. Like, we do really good on some stuff and then other stuff, which is kind of a bit, like, loosey-goosey. So I remember back when we were, the first time we were in Level 2 and club trainings were going on, we were all like, oh, yeah, only do elbow bumps, but then we're doing tackle practice for, you know, 40 minutes. So I think, you know, this, I think, speaks to a bit more of, like, the New Zealand mindset, which is like, oh, we know we're supposed to do a thing, but we're also like, she'll be right. Um, And I think the reality is, is that actually this virus is a pretty big deal and people are making the rules for a reason. I think you should just try and follow them where we can. And look, it sucks, mate, that you got disqualified for spitting and it sucks that it was you. But hey, if they told you all at the beginning of the race, that's the rules, eh? I don't always agree with the ref when they tell me that I'm offside at the rack, but there you go. If the worst we get is disqualified for spitting, happy days because we're still getting to compete.
Yeah. Oh, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how all sport across the world handles these kinds of things going forward. Anyway, we'll leave it there for this week. Thanks, Ashley, Alice, Hamish and Joe for joining me on the podcast. Remember to give us a follow on Twitter at RNZ Sport. And you can also check us out on the web at rnz.co.nz forward slash sport. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.